Uh, we're in First John chapter 2 tonight, so you can turn there. We're going to spend the next few weeks going through First uh, John. So uh, I am... I'm 30 plus years into marriage and I am doing something this week I haven't done in a long time. That is, I have got a completely empty house except for me. Yeah, I'm on day three of nobody. Well, I've got a dog, but I've ignored him. I don't even know where he's at. So, uh, but I'm, I'm totally alone. So I bought a new pair of tennis shoes, right? I haven't looked in the mirror once today. It's completely, I'm gone rogue this week. So we may be here till 10 o'clock. So I, uh, I, I apologize. So if you just get bored, you know, uh, my buddy, I was talking to him because first John chapter two is a lot. Like there's 30 verses in this chapter and it's a lot. And I asked him, I said, do you think I should preach the whole thing tonight? And he said, court, here's one thing I know about you after 26 years. He said, you can't tell time. So. So, we're not going to do that. I'm not covering the whole chapter tonight. Uh, there's way, way, way too much into it uh, for me to feel comfortable that we that I even give you enough to to take away from it if I just if I just cover the whole thing. So I'm going to break chapter two down into three distinct sections, and tonight we're going to talk about advocacy. Um, and then next week we're going to talk about our call to arms. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about our anointing and all of that's in chapter two, right? And, uh, in that last of the three weeks, we're going to spend some time talking about the antichrist. So if you have any interest in that, you can come and we're going to spend a little bit of time, uh, speaking into that phenomenon as we go through this. But tonight we're in first John chapter two. We're just going to, we're going to cover in the chapter, just two verses. So having about 41 minutes for two verses is about right for me. So you guys should be fine, right? So a guy went into a pet shop. I told this on Saturday night in my Saturday night class. So if you were there, I apologize. But a guy went into a pet shop and said, I want to buy, he said, I want to buy a monkey. Guy said, great. We got three of them. He said, super. Let me see him. Brings the first monkey out. And he said, the monkey's 500 bucks. The guy's like, well, that's pretty high. He goes, what's this monkey do? And he's like, well, this monkey can fix computers. All right. Guy said, what about the second one? And he said, the second one's $1,500. Guy's like, $1,500 for a monkey? What does that monkey do? He said, that monkey knows how to write program, write code for computers. So he's $1,500. The guy's like, all right. He goes, what about this third one? And he goes, that third one, that one's $5,000. And the guy just, his mouth fell open. He couldn't even say anything. And finally he said, $5,000 for a monkey? He said, what does that monkey do? The guy looked at him and said, I have no idea what this monkey does. I've never seen him do a thing, but they call him a consultant. <laughs> right? I don't, the one thing I like about, the one thing I love about John's writings is John doesn't write like a consultant. Right? John writes like me. John writes like a person that's actually doing this, that's living this reality. The, I mean, so, I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes reading Peter and the way Peter writes, I just feel bad about myself, right? He is so one way that, that his writing just make me, makes me feel like I'm just a failure all the time. John's writing helps me. It communicates to me on a level that is 100% human, and I love that, but his but his knowledge of, of who Jesus is, his theology about 
his Savior and our Savior is, is just phenomenal. And so, as we said last week, John wrote this letter more than likely as an elder or a shepherd of house churches in the Ephesus area, right? He's the one disciple that lived a long life. He writes these letters, as almost all of them did, to con, con, um, contradict false teaching. And here was the false teaching that was taking place in that arena, which is called uh, Gnosticism, right? And there's, a, there's other terminology, but the bottom line is this. What was beginning to be taught was the idea that knowledge was how you obtain spirituality. That if you were... That if you were to pursue knowledge, right, that could make you spiritual. Because Gnosticism taught that the flesh was evil. It's just corrupt, right? All matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, all matter was just evil. So it didn't matter what you did in the flesh because you could never make it holy. The only thing you had to focus on to be holy and to be spiritual was to learn. Gnosticism is from the Greek word gnosis or gnosis. It means to know, right? So what they were teaching was you can live any way you want to eat, drink, and be merry. It's fine, right? As long as you're pursuing an upper level knowledge, it's all totally fine. And John writes to combat that issue because my, my buddy asked me, he said, do you think that that's happening today? I said, I think it's the false teaching of this generation. The false teaching of my generation, I didn't go to church, but when I did go to church, here was the false teaching of our generation, and that is legalism, right? We taught legalism as a false religion. We taught everything is earned, right? You can get Jesus for free, but you've got to earn him to keep him, right? And we judged things harshly. We set up rules, and we said Christians do this, 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 but if you're a Christian and you do this, this, and this, you're going to go to hell unless you repent, right? We taught legalism. The problem is... Legalism produced Gnosticism. And here's Gnosticism in the 21st century. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Right? I'm not interested in following any type of guidelines. I'm not interested in any of that. But I'm going to pursue self-realization and self-actualization. So I'm going to sit at a coffee shop and I'm going to, I'm going to read things and I'm going to meditate and I'm going to burn incense and I'm going to pursue this spirituality that's a higher plane than those dumb church folks could ever attain to. And so when you watch all these videos on TikTok or Instagram, here's what you're finding. Everybody deconstructing their faith. Oh, I've got a terrible church story. Oh, you'll never believe it. I went and did this with this group of people and what I saw drove me away from the church and I'll never believe, believe the church again. And what's happening is Gnosticism is taking over a generation of our children. Millennials believe in that Gnosticism. And here's the problem with Gnosticism, right? In the 21st century. If I'm going to pursue my own spirituality, then I get to have my own truth. Right? You see, the problem with Gnosticism is it eliminates the need of a savior. Right? So did legalism. It's just that we didn't think it did because we told everybody you had to repent and confess and be baptized. But then we negated the power of a savior by telling everybody, if you do stuff wrong, you're probably going to go to hell. And we made people feel like they had to earn it. Well, they raised a generation of people and didn't want our, didn't, we didn't want our kids to ever be ever near, anywhere near that. And so what Satan's done is he's taken the opportunity and now they've got a new gospel. I'm not going to go to church. I don't need religion. That's yucky, right? 
But I'm going to pursue spirituality. I'm going to meditate. And I'm going to do all these spirits. I'm going to eat right. And I'm going to, and I'm going to read. And I'm going to do these things. And I'm going to have my truth. And my truth says, I identify as this. Right? The problem is, is Gnosticism is prevalent today in our churches. Right? There's no, there's no acknowledgement of God as authority or His Word. There's just nothing but a mockery of it. Now we pursue our truth, right? We pursue our identity. This is my truth. I identify as this, and I do this. That's Gnosticism in the 21st century. So this is why, to me, learning about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are important. Because even though it was different in form back in Paul's or John's day, it's prevalent today. And we all have people we know and love in the generation that are living, believing, and thinking that. Listen, I've got daughters who I know, who I know love Jesus. But they're also being inundated with a conversation that allows them to believe that church is unnecessary. But you can still pursue spirituality without being a part of any of that. No, you can't. And John writes, or John writes about that. And so last week he built the premise. And so chapter one and chapter two of first John are built on this premise. Here's the message. He said, the message we heard, here's the message we heard after all the time with Jesus. Remember he said, I, I touched him. I listened to him. I sat with him, right? I was there with Jesus. And here is the message, not one of many, but here is the message we have. God is what? Light. And in him, there is no dark. That's the message, right? And then he goes on to say, hey, if you're claiming you've got a, uh, that you're in fellowship with God, right? If you're claiming that you're in partnership with God, then he said, you're going to walk in the what? You're going to walk in the light. Because if you're in fellowship with him, right? If you're in partnership, like I can be in a relationship with my wife because we stood before somebody and said, I do and I do and we filed their certificate and the state of Illinois went, bam, married, right? We're married, but I can be out of fellowship with her just like that. Everybody understand the difference, right? Listen, we live married, right? Partnered, but we're out of fellowship with our partner, our kids, right? That, that's no fun. So what he says is, if you're in fellowship with God and claiming it, but you're walking in darkness, you're just a what? You're just a liar. And the truth isn't in you. Right? That's the problem. See, that's, that's Gnosticism. Gnosticism says, I can have my own truth. Right? I can claim to be in fellowship with God, but I can support these things. Right? I can support abortion. I can support gay marriage. I can support gender equal or gender identity the way I want to I ascribe it to. I can, I can do all of those things and I can still claim to be in fellowship with God. John says, no, you can't. Because if you claim fellowship with God, you walk in the what? You walk in the light. Why? Because God is light. And anybody that's in fellowship with God walks in light and not in darkness. And he's not, listen, and, and he makes it clear that that's, that, that periodically, listen, periodically walking into the darkness as a Christian is something we've all done. I, I, my guess is that everybody online, I didn't say hello, but er, welcome to everybody who's watching online. Thank you guys for being here. My guess is that everybody online and everybody in here would agree, hopefully, that at some point in time in your Christian life, even though you love Jesus and want to honor God, you've still stepped into the dark and done dark things. Yes or no? Okay? 
The reality is, he's not talking about that. The minute you think that the Bible start talks about that, then you've missed all, you, you're missing all of the truth in here. Walking is a pattern of life, that this is my discourse, this is my direction, because as a, as a spiritual person, this is okay. This is okay to walk. God says, no, it's not okay to do that, because if you're in fellowship with me, we walk over here. We walk in light. We walk in light. And he says, if walking in the light, he said, you happen to sin, all you have to do is confess that sin, which is agree with God. Whoops, I got in the dark. I need to get back in the light. And then God forgives you because he's faithful and he cleans you of that unrighteousness. So carrying, carrying your failure should last as long as it takes for you to confess. The minute you confess, you should let it what? You should let it go. Because not letting it go is just taking God's word and not believing in it. Right? And so he goes on and he gets into chapter 2. Right? And he begins to continue this discourse. Now, before we jump into it, I just want to, I just want to read a few verses and let's have a quick conversation. All right? Here's some verses. Uh, again, the notes, the notes are always on the YouVersion Bible app, whether it's Tuesday, now, Wednesday, or the weekend. You just go to YouVersion, click more, and then it says live events and you can find, uh, you can find Tomoka and the notes are, are in there. Okay? Or you can write these down. Galatians 5.1. Right? This is a this is a foundational verse that every Christian should know, right? Let's read it together. Everybody online, everybody here, let's read it together. It is for that Christ has set us right. He says, Stand firm then, keep reading, and listen, Christianity was designed. For you and I to live free. Now let's be clear. He's not talking about freedom as an American. He's not talking about freedom from all of the rules and regulation of our government. He's not talking about free from moral restrictions that God has. He's talking about freedom from the law of sin and death. That if you do wrong, right, you get wrong. You're not, you don't live in that anymore. You've been set free from that. What it means is if you've done wrong, since you've been set free, you don't have to fear being set back again. You don't have to live in bondage to that reality because if you're a Christian and have accepted Jesus, the things that you do wrong moving forward don't put you back into prison. They don't put you back into bondage. Why? Because it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Listen, God's got a lot of things for you and I to be doing, and we need our freedom to do that, right? And it's clear he didn't mean freedom from prison because Paul actually was in freedom or was in prison. But guess what? He was free in Jesus, right? He was free from his past. He was free from his failures. He was free from his fear. He was free from all of that, right? Christians are supposed to be free from that bondage. He says this in Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no, everybody say no, no No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? No condemnation, right? So we've got freedom and no condemnation. Everybody say those two things with me. Freedom, no condemnation. And everybody in here says what? Amen. As if you're all living that way, right? Because we don't, right? 
Most people struggle with this notion in Christianity. And here's why. Because the Bible also says this in, in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Right? The wages of sin is death. And the Bible says how many of us have sinned? Right? Anybody in here want to take a stand? Anybody online want to take a stand that you've never sinned? Anybody? Anybody? Going once? Going twice? Anybody? All right. We'll all agree on that, right? We've all sinned. He says, because of our sin, you deserve to die. Wages of sin or death. How about this one? Listen to what, listen to the way Paul describes life and tell me whether you relate to this or not, right? He says, Romans 7. Go to Romans chapter 7 there. I don't understand, this is Paul. He says, I do not understand what I do. Anybody track with that? Anybody, right? I don't understand what I do. He said, for, I, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Anybody track with that? Okay, six of you. Come on, man. And this ain't the weekend. You don't have to pretend to be holy. This is, you know, this is Wednesday night. This is t-shirt night, right? This is new shoe night, okay? Right? Does anybody track with that? Right? Yeah, we track with that. This is what he says. And if I do what I do not want to do, Right? I'm agreeing that the law is good, meaning that the law said this was wrong, right? You shouldn't do it. And if I do it, even though I don't want to, I'm agreeing with the law. Hey, it got it right. He goes on to say, it's no longer, listen to this. He says, it's no longer, as it is, it is no longer I myself who is doing it, but it is sin living in me, right? He goes on. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. Right? He's not saying he's a worthless person. He just says that in his sinful nature, there's no good. Right? For I have the desire. Listen to this. See if you can track with this. I have the desire to do what's good. Anybody? Got the desire to do what's good? He said, but I can't carry it out. Right? I can't carry it out. He says, for what I do is not the good that I want to do. Right? Now, Paul's writing this as a Christian. Right? He says, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, no, he says, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Anybody track with that? Yeah? We don't talk about that in church because we don't want anybody to know. Right? Instead, we come to church and we talk about things. We're like, amen, hallelujah. How are you doing? I'm good. Meanwhile, this is our mantra. The good I know I'm supposed to do, I'm not doing. No, no, no. Instead, the thing I'm doing is a thing I don't want to do. And that's what we're doing, sitting on the fourth row in the midsection, and we're trying to sing, you know, our worship songs to Jesus. And that's what we just did the night before. Right? And we've been told, hey, you've been set free. There's no condemnation. And meanwhile, you're carrying what you did last night going, oh, my gosh, how am I supposed to do this? Because he goes on to say this. Bring that next verse up. Or is this the verse right here? Now, if I do, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I, Cord, who's doing it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. I'm all for that. Come on, man. Right? I'm ready to blame somebody, right? He said, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is always right there with me. Anybody? Right? He says, for in my inner being... 
I delight in God's law. Anybody here delight in God's law, God's word? Everybody delight in God's word, right? He says this, but I see another law at work in the members of my body. My hands, my feet, my mind, my mouth, right? And that's this. It's waging war against the law of my mind, and it's making me a prisoner of the law of sin that's at work within me. He goes on to say this. This is, this is how lots of people feel when they come to church. What a wretched person I am. It's for freedom you've been set free. There's no condemnation in Jesus. But the good I was supposed to do last night, I didn't do. Instead, I did the evil. And then he says, I'm a wretched person. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? You see, there's these, there's these incredible tensions in the Christian life. Right? Jesus sacrificed his life for us. Perfect life. First, he had to get there. That's, that's, a, that's an amazing story how he got there to be perfect in the first place. Ignoring the stuff that we never ignore. And doing it over and over again so that you would have a sacrifice worthy of God's acceptance. He did it. God crucified him. Shed his blood. Accepted it as payment for our sin. Right? And we went, someday we went, I want that. Right? Amen? Right? We want that. We need that because we are sinners. And we got it. And they told us this. It's free. You don't have to do anything for it. All you got to do is accept it. Right? Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. It's free. How many of you have accepted that? Say amen. Right? Now he says, you're free. And there's no condemnation. And yet, most of us are like Paul. The good that I know I'm supposed to do, I, I don't do. And the evil that I'm supposed to ignore, that's what I end up doing. Right? And, and here's the reality. I see this war in me, Paul says. And the war is that there's this desire and love to do the right thing. But there's also this war that wages in my mind that says do the wrong thing. And he said, more often than not, when I want to do the good, I do the evil. What a wretched person I am. Anybody ever feel that contradiction in the Christian life? It's a hard thing. And here's the reality. You can't be honest about it. Because the minute you start being honest about it to people who go to church, they start looking at you different, right? So you come to church and you have to be different, right? You have to dress. Why do you think we told people for years you got to dress up to church, right? Dress up because it'll never make people think that your life's a mess. Put on your best clothes. Why? Because people look at you and go, man, they got it all together. It's such a lie. The reality is Christians live in this battle all the time. It's not like you're different or you're special because this is your problem. This is the Apostle Paul writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit in his post-Christian life. And he says this, there's good that I want to do and somehow I can't pull it off. Instead, the evil that I know not to do, that's what I keep on doing. What a wretched person I am. I think that's, I think that's a struggle for most people. And here's the great thing about... Because Paul's, John's already moved on. He's already moved on from the assumption you can be a, you can be in fellowship with God and walk in sin. He's already moved on past that, right? Like you can't just say, listen, I can eat, drink, and be married because God doesn't care what I do in the flesh. No, no, no. He's already moved past that, debunked it because God is light. And if you walk with God, then you walk in the what? Light. The problem is, as you're walking in the light, the dark is really tempting, is it not? It's constantly over there and it knows your name. 
And it's always serving the food you like. It's all, right? It's always offering the temptation that draws you in, right? It's always wearing the clothes that you like. It's always selling the beer that you enjoy. It's always got the game you want to gamble on. It's always got the right thing in the dark. And even though you left church and you loved Jesus and worshiped and told everybody how stinking amazing it is, the evil that you're not supposed to do, that's what you keep on doing. And that's the struggle with Christianity. That's the war that we're in, right? That's the war that most people watching online and most people in here fight. If not on a regular basis, on a reg- not on a day-to-day basis, then on a regular basis. And how do you balance that struggle out with the promises that there's no condemnation and there's complete freedom? 30-some years of being in ministry and almost 40 years as a Christian, what I have observed is this. Most people are terrible at it. Most people are just terrible at it. And so they end up hiding. They end up hiding. Or they end up being so hypocritical and self-righteous that they're almost impossible to be around. When all God wants is this to acknowledge that reality. Because the promises of God, listen, the promises of God that we're going to read in these two verses only going to matter if you accept that reality, right? And, and, And I hate to burst your bubble, but the person that you were dumb enough to marry has that struggle. Oh, but they're a Christian. Yeah, they are. But I guarantee you there's evil in their mind. And the good they want to do they're probably going to do some evil. And you freak out and you can be mad. You can demand perfection. But you married a person in the same war that you got. And if you were doubly dumb and had kids, you brought those people in the world. And guess what? They're in the same fight. And I don't know if you've noticed what it looks like to wage spiritual warfare as a teenager today. But it looks a lot different than it did when I was a teenager. And here's the thing. We're always demanding perfection out of our children, right? Freaking out if they do something wrong. Listen, this is the apostle Paul. I would put his resume up against our collective resumes of serving God. And he says, I've got this struggle because sin lives in me. It's not me. I love Jesus, but sin, it's got a mind of its own. Sometimes I veer over there. So what does is, what is John teach us? Listen to what chapter 1 John 2, 1 says right out of the gate. He says, my dear children, right? He's only writing this as a spiritual, spiritual perspective. He said, my dear children, I write this so that you will what? Not sin. Why? Because God is what? God is light. Everybody say God is light. And if we claim to have fellowship with God, we should walk in the... So I'm writing this to you so that you don't sin. But if anybody does sin, leave it right there. Bring that back up. Anybody does sin. Does that apply to you? Yes or no? Does that apply to your spouse? Yes or no? Apply to your boyfriend? Yes or no? Smart move on some of your people to not answer that question. It applies to all of us, right? But if anybody does sin. So the next part he writes is for who? 
Everybody say me. It applies to me, right? And so here's what he says. So if anybody does sin, because guess what? We love Jesus, God's light. We're going to walk in light. But because of the struggle that we know wages in the war of our mind or in our mind, that battle that rages, that there's this evil living in me and that I often do the evil that I don't want to do because that's there. We sometimes sin. Yes or no? What do we do when we do it? He says, but if anybody does sin, listen to what he says. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Let's talk about that for a minute. Defense. Here's my first. Did I give you the point? Here's my first point. Here's my first one. Advocate. So the, the, the Greek word there for uh, that we're going to talk about is the Greek word for advocate. It's often used in the New Testament and, and, in, and in Greek literature to refer to a defense attorney, a, a legal counsel, right? Advocates without accusers are what? Cheerleaders. I, I played sports. I never played individual sports. I always played team sports, and we always had cheerleaders, right? Now, nobody was on the floor. Yes, people were talking trash, but nobody was accusing me of stuff, Right? So cheerleaders were over there and they were saying things like D E E, whatever they spelled. I don't know what it was, right? <laughs> the only thing I remember they spelled was B E A G G R E S S I V E, right? Be aggressive, right? But they cheered, right? Because, it, because a person that stands up on your defense and nobody is accusing you, that person's just a cheerleader. Now, listen, every once in a while it's nice to have, it's nice to have somebody cheering you on, yes or no? But, I would rather have somebody that's got my back and defends me when somebody's accusing me of something. Yes or no? Because the reality is this for most Christian people. The last thing we ever get when we're in trouble and doing something wrong is somebody to come to our defense. Usually we have lots of people who want to come and point the finger, right, and prosecute us. Anybody ever feel that? Some of you I know because you're not responding were the prosecutors in lots of cases. Right? I was always the kind of person that needed a defense lawyer. Right? That's my style of Christianity. So these things speak to me. Because I've been in situations where I've been the only person to make a defense on my behalf. And I can tell you, there's no lonelier place in the world than to have to defend yourself. Right? That's why everybody who says that a person that defends himself has a fool for a client. There's nothing harder in the world to do than defend yourself. But man, when you need a defense and somebody's got your back and somebody's accusing you, that person becomes incredibly special. Did you hear what he said? I write this so you won't sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate. An advocate. Let's go through that word. The word is two Greek words, para and kaleo. Para just means, para is a, is a Greek word that just means come alongside, close beside somebody, right? So para, right, means to be close, beside. Kaleo, kaleo is the Greek word to call, to, to basically speak, right? So what he says is a para kaleo, right, a Advocate is somebody who stands beside you and speaks on your behalf. That's the kind of person I want when somebody's accusing me. Yes or no? Right? Now listen, the word parakaleo is a, is a verb. <clears throat> it's used 106 times in the New Testament. 
And every time that Greek word is used as a verb, it refers to people. Comfort, right? If you're close beside and defending somebody, you can comfort them, you can encourage them, you can do all kinds of things. 106 times and 106 different ways it's used as a verb. It's only used five times as a noun in the New Testament. Only five. And every reference is to either the Holy Spirit or to Jesus. Because people cannot be paracletes. They can only give parakaleo. We can only do the verb part. We can't be the noun part. That's God's thing, right? You can't ever represent me before God, which is why you don't need a priest. You can't do it. A parakaleo is a person who stands beside you when you've done wrong. Because remember the context, if anybody does what? Sin, you have an advocate, a defense. I'm not talking about when you're doing something right and somebody's going, yeah, you're awesome. That's a cheerleader. I'm talking about when you mess up and you've got something that needs to be defended. Only God can assume the role as the paraclete. People can assume the role as giving paracleo. We can give comfort. We can come alongside people. We can support people, but we can't represent them before God. That's why five times as a noun, it's used four to describe the Holy Spirit and once to describe our Savior right here in 1 John chapter 2. Man, I found that amazing. I found that a noun verb, the noun form of that word, only God can do the verb form we're supposed to do. And just so you know, there's a reason why we are asked to do the verb part. Because when human beings do the kind of thing that only God actually can do, we begin to look just like who? We'll begin to look like God. How cool is that? But he said, you got an advocate. you got a guy beside you in the middle of a time where you need somebody to defend you. Don't lose the context. You've messed up. What do you do when you've messed up? He says, you've got a person that stands beside you and makes a defense. All right? I like that. I'm all, I'm, listen, I'm all about somebody having my back when I'm stupid. Anybody? Right? It's not like the picture they always talk about, you know, about your best friend, you know. Your best friend's the kind of person that you can look at and say, here, hold my beer, right? While you get ready to go do something stupid. Those people are called cellmates eventually, okay? A paracleo isn't that guy. A paracleo is a person or a paraclete is the person that stands beside you. He's got your back when everybody else is pointing the finger and they're speaking on your behalf. They're not standing there silently. They're not standing there as the silent support. No, no, no. They're speaking. Kaleo means to talk, to speak, to make a call. They're defending you. The question is, who are they defending you to? This is what's powerful. Let's read a couple verses. I don't skip the Matthew, the Matthew 8. I'm not going to use that, right? Uh, go to Revelation 12. This is awesome. So context, Revelation 12, we're getting the the picture of end times from heaven's perspective. Takes about 20 verses where the end times from human perspective takes 20 chapters. Okay. So he's in the middle of describing what's happening in the middle of, of the uh, tribulation, the final seven years. Okay. He says this at one point in time he says that in the in the in the tribulation period he says there's a war in heaven michael and his angels fight against the dragon who is satan and the dragon and his angels fight back this is taking place in heaven in the tribulation he says but he was not strong enough the dragon and they lost their place in heaven and the great dragon 
was hurled down. And he describes him. He's the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. And he was hurled down, right? Who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Sounds like quite a war that raged in heaven, right? Look what happens in heaven after Satan gets thrown out. Now we're not talking. This isn't, this isn't when Satan got fired from his job because he said he wanted to be God. We know from Job. We know from what Peter said, right? Satan still had access to God's ear because he was an angel. Right? He just got fired. When he decided he wanted to take over and wanted a little bit of God's throne, God fired him from his job. But he didn't lose his access in heaven. Because wasn't it God and Satan that had a conversation in heaven about Job? Yes or no? So this is the second thing. And this is the one where he no longer gets to have God's ear. And look at what the inhabitants of heaven say when Satan gets kicked out of their area. A loud voice in heaven said, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. You can just hear the relief in heaven and the authority of his Christ for the of our brothers who accuses those brothers and sisters before our God day and night has been hurled down. Why do you need an advocate when you sin? Because the minute you do, right? Listen, I know the good I'm supposed to do. I know the good I'm supposed to do and I didn't do it. Anybody relate to that? Yes or no? I know the evil I'm not to do and that's what I keep doing. Anybody relate to that? Yes or no? Right? That's the dilemma of the Christian life when we're supposed to be set free and walking in the light and no condemnation. So John says, I write this so you don't sin. But what happens when you do? Two things happen. The accuser runs right to God's throne and goes, see, 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 walking in the light. No, 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 no. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't. They walked in darkness. Right. Look at the evil that they did. Right. He's right there every day, every night before God's throne for every person. The minute you mess up, he's right there. Satan's a busy, busy being. Imagine what your resume looks like and how busy it keeps Satan before the throne. You see, that's a resume you don't talk about. Like, nobody's going to know that, right? God knows it because somebody's always there reminding him. Satan runs right up to the throne of God. Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you see? See, I told you. Walking in the light. No way. Those people still live in darkness. Every, and how often does he do it? All day. Every day. Do you get that? All day, every day. And he's got one job. He's using your resume to say to God, see, I was right. You were wrong. Let him go. And then guess what happens? The advocate steps up. Right? This person beside you. Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. Like, you know the drill. You love Jesus. You want to do the right thing. And I'll be dipped if you didn't do something stupid and do the wrong thing. And now you're like, what, what am I going to do? Listen, you need to see what happens in the, in the spiritual world. You mess up. Satan shows up right there because he's right there. He was busy talking about your children or your best friend or your roommate or your coworker because they'd already messed up. And then you mess up and he's like, oh, wh- wait a minute. Look what Cord did. See, I told you. 
He's not a Christian. He's not walking in the light. You need to let him go. And the minute that happens, Jesus is right there on my behalf before God saying on my behalf, I got it. Do you get that? We live in a world where we're abandoned when we mess up. It's why people don't like church for so many years because you couldn't be honest about your mess ups and come to church because those things didn't jive. But man, they jive in heaven. When your kid's messing up and you're freaking out and they know Jesus, they've got, a, they've got an advocate. They don't have you point your finger saying, you should be a better kid. I expected more out of you. I can't believe you think you're a Christian. Meanwhile, Jesus is in heaven going, I got him. I got him covered. How do we get our kids to buy that if we won't live it? How do we get our spouses to believe it? You need to come to church with me more often. Why? So I can see it not practiced in my home, right? This is what we learn spiritually, but we don't practice it in real life. How do we ever connect the gap there? We, 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 we believe it and then we practice it. Listen, I don't know about you, but to know that my Savior didn't just die for me and went, that's it, I covered it, I'm done. Every time I sin, every time I sin, Jesus comes right to my side and stands before the judge and says, I got him. He's my advocate. He's right there beside me. And I don't know about you, but that makes letting go of my mistake a lot easier. Because when you got people accusing you, it's hard to let it go. But at the most important spot in your life, I write this so you do not sin. That's the goal. Let's be honest. Life is a lot easier when we're not doing stupid stuff. But he says, but if you do, if you do sin, know two things. You got an accuser. He's right there, right there in God's face, trying to get God to break his promise. And Jesus is right there on your behalf. Not shaking his head. Not saying, I'm so tired of this. Like, I can't believe I'm doing this again. No, Jesus is right there. Being your legal counsel on your behalf. And he doesn't even come to you and go, hey, can you tell me the story before I go in here and talk to God? I'm going to need some details. No, the Bible says he knows what? He knows everything. He's already got it. And in spite of everything he knows, he still Man, that's comforting to me. Right? We have an advocate. Let's read a couple of verses here real quick. John 8. Because here's the hope of the accuser. John 8. When they kept on questioning Jesus, this, was the, this is the woman uh, caught in adultery, right? When they kept questioning him, Jesus straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. We talk about stupid things like, I wonder what Jesus wrote on the ground. Who cares? Like, why waste your time? Right? He said, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, right? Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. He straightened up and he asked her, because this is the hope of accuser. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Right? That's the hope of every accuser. All Satan wants in using your resume is, get God to, is to get God condemn you. You accepted Jesus. Amen? Yes or no? He says no condemnation. Amen? 
right? What's he trying to do? He's trying to get God to renege on that. He wants condemnation. And guess what he's using to try to get God to condemn you? He's using your what? Your sins. He's using your sins. He's not borrowing from mine, right? Holy cow, my phone's broke, right? He says, he says, I'm using, I'm using your sins. And here's what Jesus said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Listen, as long as you've got an advocate with the Father, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? I'm going to take five minutes, right? I'm going to give you five minutes of the second point. Here's the second one real quick. Advocates without a defense are... Listen, if you've got a legal counsel and it says, hey, defense, it's time to present your case, and the first thing your lawyer says is, I rest my case, you're in trouble. Right? Any good lawyer who's going to stand on your behalf needs to make a defense, yes or no? Right? You've got to have that. Right? You've got to have that. You've got to have... You've got to have somebody that's got evidence to make a case. Look at verse 2 of 1 John 2 says. We've got an advocate, right? If any of you sins, you've got an advocate. 1 John 2, 2, okay? Can you, there you go. Listen to what it says. That advocate, he's also this. He is the, everybody say that with me, the atoning. Everybody stop. Read it again. He is the atoning sacrifice. In the Greek, that's propitiation, Right? It's, it's the Greek word that, that mercy comes from, right? Because mercy is required to appease. So basically somebody's, somebody is, you're owed, you owe somebody something. And now somebody steps in and gives them something else to appease or to propitiate that against you, right? That's what he says. That atoning sacrifice for our what? Sins. I write this so that none of you will sin, but if any of you sin, you've got an advocate who's also a propitiation. He's a, he's something given on your behalf to the judge for your sin, and not only for yours, but also for the sins of the what? You can just take your, that word world out of here, and you can just say for the sins of your whole house. Because the problem is, we don't even let the people that we live with feel that peace. Right? We don't even let our people that we're married to feel that peace. We want judgment. We want justice. We want whatever. The reality is that if Jesus is standing on your behalf, making an appeasement offering to God for your sins, he's not just doing it for you. He's doing it for the person you're married to. And he's doing it for the child that you're raising. He's doing it for your neighbor. He's doing it for your coworker. He's doing it for who? Everybody. Again, we take those things and the reality is they'll only become believable when we practice them. Listen, I want you to get it for you. But as much as anything, I want you to give it away. Because how do we sell the gospel if you won't practice what it teaches? I can tell you this, we can't. Which is why our coffee shops are filling up. And TikTok's filling up. Because people are sick of church. But they're spiritual. Well, of course they are. Ecclesiastes says that God's placed eternity in every human heart. They've got to find something to fill it. And they're avoiding church like the plague. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. As a fellow sojourner in this journey and as a pastor of this church, believe this for yourself. Take it to heart and live it and give it away to the people around you. 
Because then it becomes believable. Listen, I want to read a couple of verses. Skip, skip Romans, skip Luke, go to Ephesians 2, 4. Here's what Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 says. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. There are two Greek words for mercy in scripture. One of them has to do with, I made you a promise, right? I made you a promise and you did something stupid, but because I made you the promise, right? I'm going to be merciful anyway, right? I'll just give you an example. You've got a, you've got kids, right? And you tell your kids, uh, Hey, listen, we're doing something. Hey, tonight, I know this isn't going well right now, but tonight we're going to go out for supper. So we'll go out and eat later tonight and then we'll get some ice cream. You go fast forward. You have a terrible afternoon. Your kids do something stupid, like talk back to you, right? And you say to them, listen, what you behaved this afternoon was terrible. And I have it in my mind to not, to not take you out to supper and buy you ice cream like I said. But because I promised you, I'm going to take you. That takes mercy. That's the Greek word used almost exclusively for mercy in Scripture and is in this verse. Right? You make a promise. The person on the end of the promise does something stupid, but you keep the promise anyway. That requires mercy and compassion. Anybody, everybody track with that mentality? That's the number one word for mercy in Scripture. And God has it for us. He's rich in it. Because he made a promise to us. Are we worthy of the promise? No. Well, I'm not. You might be. I don't know. Well, you come to Tomoka, there's a good chance you're not. So, um, you know, we're probably not, right? That's not the root word for propitiation. The root word for propitiation is mercy in another form. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2. I want to read this verse. Hebrews 2 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, right, you and me, He too shared in our humanity. How? That by his death, he might destroy him, right? So how did Jesus share in our humanity? He took on flesh. He became a boy, right? Became a man. Listen to this. Go back to verse 13 real quick there, right? He he shared in our humanity so that by his death, that's by the death of Jesus, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the what? The devil. So the devil holds your death certificate in his hands because you've sinned, knew the right to do, didn't do it, knew the wrong to do, did it anyway, sinful, right? He holds that death. Jesus came to destroy that and he came to destroy him. He says, he did it, verse 15, and when he did it, he freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Anybody ever do anything wrong and then afraid what's going to be the consequence of it? Right? He says, spiritually, that's what people live like. Known they broke God's law, lived in fear of that reality all the time. He said, I want to set people free from that fear. And he goes on to say in verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he's helping, but Abraham's descendants, you and me. And we've already talked about this on the weekend. You put your faith in Jesus. Amen? You're a descendant of Abraham, which means you're a recipient of God's promise. And he says this, verse 17. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful, that that mercy, that compassion that's derived from a promise made, 
right? He had to be merciful to us. So that means, listen, when you're stupid and I'm stupid and we're not acting like children of the light, but because promised, God's promise to us as a descendant of Abraham is he's never, ever going to forsake us. He gives us what? Mercy. He's compassionate toward us. And then it says, become a faithful high priest in service to God. And then he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The other form of mercy, which is the appreciation kind. So God's mercy about his promise to us leads him to be merciful and make an offering on our behalf. You see, here's the great thing about your advocate. He doesn't come in there and try to convince God to keep you on his side because he's passionate, right? Like I spent years and years and years being a coach and I tried to motivate my players by being passionate. And I thought that should be, I thought that should be sufficient. And what I learned was this coaches that have nothing else to give are passionate, but real coaches bring something to the table, something that makes other people better. See, the great thing about our advocate is this. He doesn't show up there and go, man, I really like you court. Hang in there. I'm going to sell this, right? Like Jesus isn't a used car salesman. He's not going up there. And if you're a used car salesman, my apologies, right? He's, he's not, he's not there trying to sell you on passion. Like, listen, court is an awesome dude. Like he is so funny, right? He can't tell time, but he's so funny, right? Like you've got it. Like he doesn't do that. No, no, no. You know what Jesus does? He comes there with an act of mercy. And it is an atoning sacrifice for your sins. So listen, you don't just have an advocate when you do something wrong. You've got an advocate that's got your payment for your stupidity. And he gave it to God. And when God sees your advocate with a real defense, a real defense, God's got no, no other alternative but to keep his promise. And if God's keeping his promise and you're set free, why then are you moping around and living in your shame and your guilt? And why are you making other people who are fellow travelers do the same thing? Stop it. Because how are we ever going to sell this message of good news if the people who carry it are miserable people? We can't. It's just never going to work, right? Listen, you've got an advocate. Amen? Defends you when you're stupid. Amen? And he doesn't just defend you out of passion. He's got a defense. He was made guilty on your behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to become sin on your behalf that you might become the righteousness of God in him. God made the... Let me check this out. God made the advocate guilty on your behalf. And the advocate was qualified to pay the debt, the atoning sacrifice. So guess what? Galatians 5.1 applies. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not, do not let yourself be, been, be you know, swindled into some yoke of slavery. The slavery that other people hold you into because they won't forgive you. The kind of slavery that you hold yourself into because you won't forgive yourself. He said, don't be doing that. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for our advocate, God. 
we only get it because you, you explained it to us, God, because you, you, you somehow within the power of your word and the power of your spirit show us that truth. There are people I know sitting in here, people who are watching online that have been doing this alone for a long time, afraid to be exposed, afraid to be known. And so they've lived in that fear. They've lived in that bondage. And then they transfer that same fear and that same bondage to their their spouse, their boyfriend or their girlfriend, their best friend, and more importantly, their children and grandchildren. And so we pass on that generational curse within our churches. God, I want us to be a church that breaks that curse. I want us to be a church that learns to live in the freedom that Jesus gives us. I want us to learn to live in the freedom that if anyone does sin, you have an advocate who's your atoning sacrifice. And I want us to live in it and I want us to give it away. I want us to be that kind of church. I want us to have that kind of house. I want us to have that kind of family. And I want us to have that kind of community so we can have that kind of world. We're being inundated. We're being inundated, Lord, with the message of the devil everywhere we turn. It's fear and it's bondage and it's destruction. And the message that Jesus gives is a message of freedom. God, convict us and change our hearts to be those people so the world can can truly see that we're walking in the light because you're light. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.